politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard anew our life, liberty, and property. We thought we did it in 1776, but it has been undone and we must do it again here at Sierra Podcast. It is Friday, November 3rd, and we got a lot to talk about. Disparate uh, array of topics here. Want to start out with Biden's war on Israel, avoiding a divide on the right. Again, what should and shouldn't be done there. And then move on to the latest on some of the lawsuits on Remdesivir and the vaccines. And that just reminds me the fact that, look, you know, we haven't talked about this in a couple of weeks, but we haven't made any progress on justice for. Uh, the COVID genocide, even preventing it from happening in the future. And then people are just filing into pharmacies, getting their flu shots. COVID shots looks like people have wised up to them, but the RSV shots are beginning. We have enough evidence to catch the left and indict them, at least politically, on so much of the destruction that they've done. Whether it's destroying our energy and inflation, certainly the border, that's that's obvious. Crime, supporting terrorists, now supporting anti-Semitism, the COVID genocide, and even January 6th that, you know, most people bought into the lie, but, you know, we have certainly enough evidence to indict them on that. But yet, because we don't have a unified, focused, disciplined, and frankly, a brain-celled movement— the show just continues and the evil accelerates unabated. We lack a national advocate. And that's what we need. But we don't have one. An absent one, people just bifurcate and divide, as I mentioned uh, earlier this week and yesterday, into all different crazy ways. And, you know, that's why I first want to start off today just nailing home what we've been talking about the past few weeks since October 7th, a vision on national security and foreign policy that eschews this false dichotomy between the neocon, just bizarre, ill-informed and counterintuitive nation-building interventionism versus pacifism, which is what a lot of the reactionary right is, is being driven to, and in fact, if you understand what America first actually means, you could be very strong in standing up to evil and certainly standing up to our prerogatives by simply unwinding a lot of these bad policies. And then we do have a military for a purpose, and it can be used wisely when, when need be as a deterrent piece through strength. And as much of a critic as I've been of President Trump's domestic policy— a good amount, not all of it, but a good amount of his foreign policy demonstrates the ability to go for four years without starting another major war. I think he did too much in Syria helping the Iranians to fight ISIS. That was his big blind spot. But generally speaking, you could use the right statecraft to stand up for our prerogatives and also stand up for evil against allies as well without nation building. And in fact, it's, it's the neocon stuff that negates that. And we need to be clear-minded about it. Today, or actually really tomorrow, Saturday, is going to be the 44th anniversary of the Iranian Islamo-fascist taking 52 Americans hostage for 444 days. As we well know, several years later, they killed hundreds of Marines in Beirut. Now, they shouldn't have been there. Ironically, they were there actually to impose a ceasefire on Israel and screw with them which is always the case. But Iran has been the biggest problem for 44 years. We've pissed away our, our efforts on every other aspect of the Middle East, and we've actually strengthened them more than ever. That needs to be unwound. We don't need to start this whole false dichotomy of starting another war. Israel is in a war. There, there's nothing they can do about that. Our job is to simply allow them to take the revenge on our behalf and for us to focus on our hemisphere. And by the way, the Hezbos are everywhere in Latin America and in Dearborn, Michigan, 
and places in Texas all over the place, thanks to our immigration policies. So you got this guy, Nasrallah, the chief Hezbo, gets up there. The media hyped up the speech he was going to give. And he gets up there and he sounds like a beta goat. You know what? I mean, I guess he had, took a day off of his uh, sleeping with goats and, and young boys. And he gets up there and he just gives a beta speech. We're going to kill the Israelis, but uh, not now. We're a little bit scared to do that. And then, I mean, what a beta guy. He wouldn't even own up to the massacre. He's like, the Israelis killed most of their civilians. Like, come on, be a man and at least brag about it. Um, and then wouldn't own up to the fact that Iran controls them. Oh, no, we control our own destiny. I mean, c- dude, come on. Such a beta. But between the lines, if you understand what he's doing there, why is it that they're not attacking? The answer is because they already are attacking, but low-intensity warfare. So what the Biden administration has done is that they forced Israel to basically eat low-intensity warfare. You have have the entire Israeli north border evacuated. I mean, a big, substantial portion. Like, they have a town there of 20,000 people. They've been evacuated. That's very disruptive to a country that small. And they're constantly firing rockets, destroying homes in Israel's northern towns. I mean, that's something that a nation shouldn't have to eat. That is a declaration of war times a million. But they've moved the Overton window that unless they kind of invade, Israel has to eat it. And Biden said that they can't launch a preemptive strike, but it's not preemptive because it's dealing with the constant low-intensity warfare that's not going to stop until you root it out. But Biden is preventing Israel from doing that, and that's why they have the assets there in place. And that's why being supportive of moving our assets out of the Middle East is pro-Israel. You need not be anti-Israel, um, you know, like, like this reactionary right. So it's a smart move from Nasrallah because why move to high intensity when he could continue the low intensity with the support of the Biden administration. And make no mistake about it, that's what they're doing. If you if you look at what they're doing, they have uh, Tony Blinken there. Again, I mean, this is what the Republicans in Congress need to defund. We don't need to turn Israel into Ukraine. Simply defund the diplomatic missions to Israel. Stay the hell out and focus on our border Monroe Doctrine foreign policy done and then just make the right alliances now under this admin you're not going to be able to force them to do that although I do think we could um, I think Congress needs to put a provision in the budget bill uh, defunding our diplomatic relations with Qatar until they hand over the Hamas dudes that by the way flew to Iran crying to them because so Israel's about to encircle the core of Gaza City. They're making nice progress. And in comes Tony Blinken to beg them for a ceasefire. Now, a ceasefire, I mean, any of you, we have a lot of veterans in this audience, you served in infantry, you understand where the Israeli soldiers are now. A ceasefire means suicide that speaks to Hamas's guerrilla warfare strength. Right? If you stall out the IDF, that allows them to just launch guerrilla attacks on their stagnant forces. Sitting stationary in enemy territory that you've cut in half, but you haven't fully conquered, is the worst position to be in, which is exactly what the Biden admin is doing. What, what the Biden administration is doing to Israel's borders and their war effort is analogous to the pictures and videos you see of them cutting through a Texas DPS's border walls and you know uh, razor wire just totally arsoning literally just siding with the bad guys that's what they're doing there so republicans yesterday passed you know this bill 14.5 billion in aid to israel uh built upon cuts to the irs and um all but two republicans voted for it uh massey and mtg Um, obviously Massey and MTG are not pro-Hamas. They just don't believe in any foreign aid. MTG did put out a pretty good statement basically making the case we're making that we need to focus on 
um, not hamstringing Israel and and cutting off their enemies. Um, so again, I, I could appreciate either either way is someone choosing to vote. But what Republicans need to do now is be willing to walk away from it if the Senate doesn't pass it, which they won't, and put these provisions into the budget bill. Because it's more about policy. But the one thing we cannot allow is for the right, in order to, because they're so confused about the issue, this reactionary loserdom, by the way, very much overlaps with the sorts of people who um, were obsessed about DeSantis's boots all week. It's that sort of unicell organism to just start supporting Hamas. And, oh, the guys, the civilians, and all that beta talk. Now is not a time when the entire world is kind of unifying behind another holocaust. Now is not the time to open a front on America's right that didn't exist to join the left in this garbage. And I want to read to you as much as I can. I might read the whole thing because I couldn't get him on the show today. We had Lee Smith on a couple weeks ago. He wrote the definitive piece for any America first American conservative on the politics of what is going on there in Israel, the Biden administration, and how the Biden administration is trying to divide the right with their Israel op and how we should ensure we don't take the bait. So I want I want to read as much of it. Normally I give my own original thoughts, but this is something, a rare circumstance that I'm like, man, I wish I would have written that. Because it's basically the thesis I've been pushing for a few weeks, and it's just absolutely brilliant. And I think a lot of you will be able to identify with the sentiments expressed in it. But first, today's show is sponsored by something very new. Um, you know, for years, Hollywood's been lacking a lot of things, but stories of redemption. They, they're always moving towards the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and repent. There is a new movie out, The Blind, a Phil Robertson story. It's literally about Phil Robertson's life. And maybe you know someone you love in a dark place and is seeking redemption. Make sure to watch this movie. Um, you're all familiar with Phil. He's one of our very own here at Blaze. He gives you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. Now, obviously, The Blind is not a Blaze Media production, so it's going to be available at Apple and Amazon. Um, but because he is part of our Blaze TV family, we want you guys to head over to blazetv.com slash theblind, blazetv.com slash theblind, to purchase this film for $19.99. Um, it's a really a great opportunity to support support one of our own. It's not a Blaze uh, you know, operation. Again, for that, you could subscribe at the Blaze, our print is $3 a month. Uh, print plus Blaze TV is $7 a month. But this is just, you know, for this movie, it's something I plan on watching. Again, blazetv.com, The Blind, today to watch a very, very riveting story of redemption. We That's really what we need. Um, and we certainly can't lose our moral clarity at this moment in history. You know, I don't, I don't like victimhood. I think those of you who've listened to me for you know the last decade, I probably never even used the word anti-Semitism. I don't even like it. I don't like the victim-mongering. I don't like identity politics. But I will just tell you, even from someone like me, this is, it, it is bad. It is bad, bad, bad what is happening. Um, I, I don't have time to delve into this now, but NBC has a, to- a story out. 23andMe user data targeting Ashkenazi Jews linked online. Hackers have compiled a giant apparent list of people with Ashkenazi Jewish, Jewish ancestry after taking that information from the genetic testing service 23andMe, which is now being shared on the internet. I mean, there's some really dark stuff going on. And the best thing we have in America is Christian conservatives that stand with morality and, again, understanding how you, you, you don't need to do anything for Israel, just merely... Fighting Biden, screwing with them, is America first and stands with Israel um, and with the Jewish people. This is from Lee Smith, Tablet Magazine, The Israel Op. An information warfare campaign tries to flip demoralized portions of the right into supporting Hamas and Obama's Iran deal. Most people can't see evil until it touches them directly. 
Some who cheered as they watched Obama's spymasters split the country with Russiagate came to their senses only after COVID-19 protocols took the life of a loved one. Right, That's very true. COVID woke up a lot of people. Some supported attacks on Second Amendment or unrestricted immigration until they saw mobs on the streets of major cities and on college campuses calling for genocide. It's nearly impossible for most normal Americans to believe that what's happening in America is really happening, which is how these things usually go. No one can believe it until it's too late. Information warfare campaigns designed by the U.S. government to target Americans with the aim of splitting them apart from their countrymen through weaponized falsehoods are rooted in in new methods of shaping and controlling the online communities that many Americans trust to interpret the world around them. From Russiagate to COVID-19 to January 6th, the newness and force of these campaigns has knocked the country senseless, with the left readily acclimating itself to third world norms and large parts of the right increasingly hopeless. Very, very well written. And again, I, I recommend you guys take a look at this piece. What the right and and because we're all I know we're all struggling through this. I know you're gonna be shouting amen as as you read Lee Smith's uh, piece. Maybe we'll get him back next week. What the right has learned from a decade of information warfare targeting it is to distrust distrust the media. Knowing, for instance, that the Justice Department interfered in the 2016-2020 and now the 2024 elections, what else is phony? Was 9-11 an inside job? Was, you know, what about the moon landing? What haven't we been lied to? Our families are real, our kids are real, but what else is there on hold? What is there to hold on to? It's like reaching for a life raft and finding only splinters. Maybe America's fake all the way down. But it's not. And the right can't afford to let itself be fooled into despair with such with, with so much at stake. And just to interject here, I mean, this is where we need to search for the red pill, not the black pill. The same U.S. government agencies and officials that pushed everything from Russiagate to the Russia bounty story and lied about the origins of COVID-19, Hunter Biden's laptop, and the character of January 6th protests are now warning that Israel's war against Hamas is likely to drag U.S. forces into World War III, right? So Lee Smith is setting out from the onset, it's actually the same forces behind that. And, and, and Lee would know. Lee wrote the definitive book on, on Russiagate. It's another information op designed to disorient and demoralize the America First camp. This time, however, there's a big difference. An influential segment of the right is amplifying the left's campaign against them. The left claims that America is a fraud at its origins, a racist hoax perpetrated against non-whites to this very day. The left tears down monuments, desecrates our heroes, replaces our holidays, rewrites our history to suit their pathological grievances. It's a whole-of-party effort to force the middle class to our knees in despair so that the country's ruling class and the oligarchs can continue running their high-tech monopolies while defunding police forces and opening the borders to depress wages, impoverished communities, and terrorize families. But now the right is in danger of transitioning into the left. And, and again, he gets this dead on. Israel brings this out. The Israel issue brings this out very vividly. But we're seeing this on several fronts. And some of it divides a little bit along the lines of the presidential primary. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising that amid the ruins, some of those capitalizing on the chaos and preying on the shell-shocked are themselves from the right. A year ago, for example, I never heard of this guy, but right-wing influencer Jackson Hinkle sounded like a normal Trump voter. After Biden delivered his infamous Philadelphia speech accusing his political opponents of terrorism, Hinkle called him a dictator and said he was plunging us into fascism at the BS of Soros and Schwab while using the intelligence agencies to target freedom-loving Americans. Most of that is true. Today, however, Hinkle's Twitter feed looks like nothing more than a Soros-funded operation pumping out reports every hour enticing clicks via the eternal threat that is anti-Semitism and promoting actual America hating terrorists in the process. Hinkle's business model, subscribe to my ex-premium for $3 to help me defeat the Zionist lies. There's no shortage of people on both the right and the left who don't like Israel or Jews, and Hinkle is giving them what they want. But he hardly stops there. He also posts pictures of Bashar Assad proclaiming the murderous Syrian leader to be a hero. That's deranged. Assad's intel apparatus ushered Sunni fighters across the Iraq border to kill U.S. troops. One of Twitter's top influencers, Hinkle, describes himself on his feet as a Christian American patriot. 
A small group of right-wing sectarians see Assad, a member of a Muslim minority sect, as a defender of Christians, and likely take as evidence the time Assad told Pope John Paul II that the Jews killed Christ. But Bashar, like his father Hafez before him, waged a relentless war on Lebanon's Christians. Moreover, Assad is a verified dictator who did what Hinkle said Biden wanted to do, namely label his opponents as terrorists and then massacre them by the hundreds of thousands. Hinkle's an op, say his critics on social media. There's got to be a foreign power behind him. Why else, they add, would an American, would an American fly Qatar's flag on his Twitter feed because of its stance on Palestine? But really, who knows? What's clear is that he's picking up the loose change found in the path of devastation and delirium plowed by the Obama faction. If no one believes anything anymore, why not monetize despair? What will viewers pay to rubberneck a fatal car crash? Monetize despair. And that's, that's really what we have to avoid. The modality even has its own presidential candidate. The Harvard student groups who co-signed the anti-Israel letter are simple fools, tweeted Vivek Ramaswampi. But it's not productive for companies to blacklist kids for being members of student groups that make dumb political statements on campus. And I'm just skipping here, but left-wing activists don't get canceled. Maybe they lose an offer from a top firm, but there's plenty of work a leftist NGO funded by the billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars the Biden admin transferred to Democrat Party clients. And we're going to talk about that with our coming guest, upcoming guest too. Left elites pay left elites with middle class money to do the left elite thing. As someone vying to represent the right, Ramaswamy could at least show he knows that getting canceled means not being able to get a job, get into college, get a loan, get credit, or get a lawyer. More importantly, his inability to discern the difference between canceling teenagers for misusing pronouns and holding them accountable for drawing on the prestige of a famous U.S. educational institution to promote a terror group that murdered 30 Americans and is holding dozens more hostage is evidence not of nuance but amorality. It suggests that Ramaswampi has unplugged himself from civilization in order to win the votes to lead it. Nor is Ramaswampi the only prominent media figure on the right to decide that the appropriate position for the defenders of American traditions and mores is alongside murderous terrorists who pledge to destroy them. And he quotes Candace Owens getting in on, you know, this kind of anti-Jew, almost like defending Hamas stuff. Is this a social media problem, Lee asks? Partly. Once the news cycle moves out of their wheelhouse, this is important, big social media influencers are in danger of losing traffic, so they post edgy on-brand takes on whatever everyone else is talking about. It's not Owen's fault that she doesn't know the, main, the, the mainstream Western media is no more pro-Israel than it is pro-Trump. It's not her subject. She doesn't know how famous U.S. press organizations collaborate with Arab terror groups to stage war crimes designed to grind Israeli maneuvers to a halt, or that Israeli civilian and military leaders plan operations knowing they have only a few days before the media narrative she claims to oppose drives world opinion against the Jewish st state, regardless of the threats to her citizens. No, what's unnerving about Owen's assessment is that she is linking the pro-Trump right to Hamas, not by sympathizing with the Palestinians caught in the crossfire, fearful for their homes and their families, but by likening protesters celebrating a group that throws infants into ovens to people like herself, people who do not accept the media narrative. In other words, you have this you know, narrative now by people like, like Owens that it's the rabid Antifa BLM leftists and Muslim immigrants in America and Europe rampaging. They're questioning the establishment. It's like Israel is the establishment and and it's like they're serving with like the minority, almost like with COVID, like we're the, you know, 1% that's fighting it. Like, no, I mean, as we've been noting, you're actually with the 99%. Um, and, and again, just to interject, um, you know, just before finishing this up, you know, part of this is because a lot of them are making their living off of being contrarian to Republican orthodoxy and Republican dogma. So the entire world hates Israel, but the Republican Party from rhino to mainstream to right wing all unanimously supports Israel and they're bothered by that. And they, they want to show that they're like, oh, there's something wrong. But I mean, well, look, this is one area they get it right. Now, is it valid to say that they care more about Israel's border than ours and they should care about our borders as much. I agree with that. But it doesn't make this wrong. You, In other words, you can't have this reactionary nonsense. So I'm going to side with Soros, Ford Foundation, Tides Foundation, 
global media, Islamo Nazis, you know, Europe and everyone, every evil on the world, um, just to own the establishment Republicans that you don't like. I mean, I've been fighting establishment Republicans since before Candace Owens knew where the bathroom was in politics. Um, but you know, again, it, it, it's a matter of stop monetizing despair, give an affirmative vision, and fight for it. He continu Lee continues, Hamas as well as Hezbollah have long seen the global left as their strategic depth. They know that by positioning a defensive line of Arab women and children between themselves and Israeli troops, it's only a matter of time before major European and American cities are braying Israeli war crime and chorus. But now the right is so out of joint that parts of it identify with the Islamic resistance because it too has been victimized by the media, Right? Nope, this is madness. The Palestinians are funded and defended by the UN, and their cause is promoted by princes, presidents, pub and publics throughout the world. In the U.S., meanwhile, lawyers are scared off from defending middle-class Americans in our struggle against globalized oligarchy. African, Middle Eastern, Latin American, and Asian regimes are emptying their jails and turning their roles to mount a massive invasion force that will impoverish us and despoil our communities to the advantage of political and corporate U.S. elites. Unlike the Palestinians, there's no cutter waiting in the wings to write checks to rebuild our infrastructure. We are on our own. In other words, his point is, the Palestinian cause is the biggest geopolitical cause celebre in, in the entire world. We are not like them. We have nothing. Identifying with the Palestinian cause means death. Disposition and resistance are only its uh, leitmotifs. It's... Major themes are failure in war, rejection of peace, and the sacralization of terror. It is not a nationalist narrative about a proud people fighting for independence against an imperial juggernaut. It's an account of clans and warlords paid by international and regional powers to toss the inhabitants of Gaza and the West Bank into industrial-scale meat grinder to advance the interests of everyone from the Soviet Union and the global left to Syria and Iran. Against the democracy-promoting neocons who staffed the George W. Bush administration, the pro-Trump right has wisely adopted George Washington's counsel to avoid foreign entanglements and thereby reduce the opportunities for foreigners to influence our affairs. Yet it's true American leadership's relations with a foreign power have shaped the battle space in the eastern Mediterranean. But fighting Israel's wars is not why U.S. troops are sitting off the coast of Lebanon. They've been dispatched to protect what Obama called Iran's equities, namely Hamas's bigger brother, Hezbollah. Because Israel is keenly aware that the U.S. has the power to limit its operations to defend her people, it is in no position to challenge the narrative spun by the Biden admin to unite America against it by stupefying the American right with, um, with fear. And then he quotes this Colonel Douglas McGregor, who has become this big guest on Tucker Carlson's show. Mr. Netanyahu is on a path to Armageddon, McGregor writes. We must protect Israel from itself. We must protect Israel from itself. That's a growing narrative on the Tucker right, by the way. Nothing says America first, like intervening in Israel. They're, they're actually supporting Biden. But anyway... What worries the combat veteran is that in Washington, there is almost nonstop drumbeat for war with Iran, Hamas's patron. Accordingly, he sees the current conflict as a gateway through which U.S. troops are likely to be fed into the war prophesied in the Bible. He starts talking about that. Now a staple of conservative media, McGregor sees himself as the lone voice opposing Netanyahu's double march to World War III. In reality, virtually every top Democrat in Washington is saying the same thing, starting with Biden himself. According to the recent leaks from the White House during Biden's trip to Jerusalem, um, he told Netanyahu not to widen the war, to prioritize a two-state solution, and to co consider a scenario he was leaving for his successor. In other words, the Biden admin sees Israel's war as an opportunity to topple Netanyahu. Behind Biden, there are others, among others, Obama, Ben Rhodes, Thomas Friedman, all of whom have been beating the same drum about Israel's campaign to eliminate Hamas being a big mistake. Parts of the right seem unaware or unconcerned. They've enlisted themselves in a left-wing messaging campaign that ties them also into foreign actors. pro Hamas and pro-Iran Iran influencers inside the U.S. Department of Defense are targeting the right with fear tactics. Pentagon source privately, sources privately tell me there is growing sentiment that Israel is manipulating the U.S. war, the U.S. into war with Iran. Journalist Sharmin Narwani posted on X. 
That's a tantalizing leak, writes Lee, coming out of the Pentagon that employs Ariane Tabatabai, a senior DOD official as part of the Iranian intel operation that tasked second-generation Iranians in the West to influence the U.S. and Europe uh, in the lead-up to the 2015 Iranian deal. And he goes on, talks about her, and makes it clear no one wants to send U.S. troops to fight for Israel, and Israel doesn't want the Americans there. Historically, the U.S. officials who want to deploy troops to Israel are anti-Israel leftists like Samantha Power, who once imagined a scenario in which the U.S. would have to dispatch troops to prevent an Israeli genocide of Palestinians. When Biden sent a Marine general to consult with Israeli brass two weeks ago, it was to stall the ground invasion, not to assist it. That Hezbollah has repeatedly fired on Israel it further, is further evidence the aircraft carrier groups Biden deployed in the eastern Mediterranean are there not to deter Hezbollah, but rather Israel. And again, Lee wrote this before Nasrallah's speech. Nasrallah's speech, the fact that he's not upping the ante, he knows that he can have his cake and eat it too. If he ups the ante, then Israel will go after Beirut. But now he knows that Israel is kind of handcuffed in terms of what he can do, so they slowly bleed Israel dry. And even if they don't kill a lot of people, but imagine running a country where, where you're the size of New Jersey and your northern border is permanently evacuated. Just think of economically, you know, what do you do with that? Tens of thousands of people, in addition to the tens of thousands displaced you know, in in the South, both the people whose communities were gutted and then those in the, you know, closed military zone that the IDF had to, has to operate in. Contrary to McGregor's assessment, Biden is not escalating. In demanding that Israel allow aid trucks across Egyptian border unsuspected and restore Gaza's electricity, water, and internet, the president is dismantling Israel's blockade. With Israeli troops on the verge of bisecting Gaza, Biden called for a ceasefire. These are actions characteristic not of an ally, but an adversary. Which is why, of course, Iranian allies are shooting at U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq. Not because they're escalating war with the U.S., but to encourage Biden to pressure the Israelis. This, this is the name of the game. They attack American assets. This is what they did in Beirut. It's all to clamp down on Israel. And for 40 effing years, this is what our government has been doing to Israel. Instead, get our troops out and leave Israel the F alone. America first, pro-Israel, pro-morality, minimalist approach, Monroe Doctrine in our hemisphere, done. Stop creating a false dichotomy that you're either a neocon or a pacifist piece of SHIT. I'm just sick. There's nothing nuanced about those crapistans you're you're reading on you know the Ramaswampy people online. There's nothing enlightened. They're like, ah, we discovered a new way of thing. It's straight up leftist dogma. There's there's nothing nuanced about it. And look, I I, par- I I went through a lot of it, but it's worth reading in full. Lee Smith, the Israel op in Tablet Magazine. That's exactly the point. But this is emblematic of a broader problem on the right that we're stuck between the Republican Party is largely, by the way, at an operational level, it's largely not what Lee is talking about. It's just kind of straight up the same establishment. As I've said many times, Trump refilled the swamp. But to the extent we have this movement of noisemakers that don't really get anything done, it's it's like this aimless monetization of despair. I mean, my show is as dark as you can get, showing how screwed we are. But I always give you an affirmative vision, policy, strategically, politically, of what I think needs to be done, short-term, long-term, congressional legislation, the judicial system, the courts, state legislatures, elections, how to reform, you know, moving towards uh, conventions versus popular primaries. I need people to build on and augment the type of work that we're doing here. But these guys just, it's just, they have this one stop shop. Well, Israel was in charge. They were the first to allow the vaccines. So I'm supporting Hamas. Like, okay, really? I mean, that's just stupid. Just a one trick pony that everything has to fit into that paradigm and just feast on ignorance. They, They somehow think that to be smart and informed is not to be a fighter. It's like, if you've ever fired automatic weapons before, 
you'll note that if you don't learn the proper technique and aim it, it's, it's worthless. You just make a bunch of noise and spray it indiscriminately. Spray it at yourself. Spray it at, at your allies. That's not a fighter. And again, I think a lot of this is, is broken down between the different camps and the primary. But it's a very important piece that reverberates beyond just the example he's giving of the growing online right supporting you know, the leftist pro-Hamas crap. But it's becoming true on a lot of other issues and strategies. But speaking of having a constructive affirmative view, I want to get to our guest. I know it's a little bit late in the show for our guest segment, but uh, want to use the remaining time for Brad Geyer. So I want to change gears to an entirely new issue or different issue that we haven't covered in a while, back to some of the COVID fascism, January 6th stuff, and that in itself is kind of a disparate array of issues there, uh, but there's a reason for it, because there is one man who is covering both, a lawyer that is representing victims of J6 persecution and victims of remdesivir and the COVID genocide, um, a man I truly admire, and as we talk about a reactionary, aimless, rudderless right that monetizes despair, the despair is real. But rather than people monetizing it, we need people actually doing something about it. Whether it's in the electoral realm, the policy realm, the legal realm, whatever it is, culturally, medically, something. Give us something. And Brad Geyer gives us quite a lot. He is the founder of the former Feds group. It's a legal group that is just doing so much. Uh, the only one I know really straddling heavily those two big issues. And speaking of you know, the cancel culture we talked about, it's really hard for, for these sorts of defendants to get attorneys. And there's a lot of news on the remdesivir trials that we thought like, yeah, it's a juggernaut. You're never going to be able to uh, you know, um, survive a motion to dismiss with these lawsuits against the remdesivir poisoning. But they're succeeding so far. And does that have relevance possibly to vaccine injury lawsuits. So there's that and so much more. You could go to formerfeds.org to donate to their uh, legal action against Gilead, who's the manufacturer of remdesivir. Also follow them at formerfeds on Twitter and at Brad Geyer. That's Brad, G-E-Y-E-R. And he is here in the flesh today at Blaze Media. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Hey, Daniel, it's nice, being in the, it's nice being in the Mutual Admiration Society. Thank you for all you do, my friend. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I try in the policy circles, and you do it in, in, in the legal circles, and that's what we need. So, look, I thought that with PrEP Act, there was a complete blockade, but you guys have found an innovative way to sue for the remdesivir murder. Could you describe what, what, kind of the what, where, when, the details, and where things stand with your lawsuit, and then there's some others from other lawyers that have succeeded in Michigan. Um, just take take it from there. Sure. So as you know, our organization set about, we, we, we took a page out of the President Eisenhower playbook when U.S. forces stumbled on concentration camps, and General Eisenhower took staff sergeants and had them just interview anyone that could possibly know anything about what the supply chain was, how it was perpetrated, the whole bit. We, we applied that to mass deaths in the hospitals. We have thousands of members that are affiliated with us. And right now we have 1,300 recorded eyewitness interviews of survivors and uh, 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 next of kin who've documented what happened in hospitals with the hospital treatment protocols. And then we coach them and we assist them in gathering up uh, all the evidence about each death because, as you may or may not know, HIPAA seals up those records, um, you know, ostensibly, allegedly, to protect the person who was killed. But basically, it silos all that information and makes it unobtainable yeah. for plaintiff's counsel or anybody who's wanting to research it. Well, so we we've had learned two the last plaintiffs. few years that HIPAA is a one-way street. Absolutely. It was never done, in my opinion. It really wasn't... Our, Concerns about us had nothing to do with the motivations of that statutory framework. But that being said, um, we had two uh, victims that were in Shasta County, California, 
one of whom was a widow and one of whom was a survivor who has sustained just horrific injury. And uh, both of the victims received remdesivir. Remdesivir, as we know, is a failed Ebola drug and uh, it has a long track record of failure. But the most recent one was August of 2019 when it was withdrawn by a compassionate oversight board. It basically was killing about 50% of the participants that got it. That somehow became the mandated drug of choice on the hospital treatment protocols. Ultimately, down the road, you're going to have to have grand juries in panel to determine how those decisions were made and how that was foisted on the entire nation of the United States for anybody that had severe COVID. It's a terrible, terrible drug. It, uh, among other things, it causes organ failure. Um, hospitals get uh, roughly five to $6,000 uh, for the treatment. And then even worse, if you want to talk, talk about perverse incentives, the hospitals get a 20% bonus on the total hospital bill. So of course, if you're, if your drug is causing organ failure, that has, that has a significant relationship with driving up the overall cost of that, of that meal tab. And of course, you know, just incredibly horrific moral hazard kind of um, uh, incentives that were, that were created uh, by our public health agencies. Mm-hmm. So we have these two, two plaintiffs in um, Shasta County. It's, you know, our theory is that there's going to be good people in the jury veneer in Shasta County, farmers, business owners, school teachers, the whole bit. And um, we went on a kind of a different theory. We're going on the theory that they didn't disclose all the relevant information about um, their drug. They didn't disclose the the strong financial incentives. They didn't disclose this horrific track record that the drug had. And they withheld that from the people that received the drug so there could not have been informed consent. There are in California very strong consumer protection statutes we, we relied uh, uh, heavily on that. And um, so we kind of took a different approach. You're correct about the case uh, in, uh, I believe it's in Michigan, that, relate, that related to the, the uh, adulteration or the contamination of remdesivir. That case did survive a motion to dismiss. And I have to tell you, I have some good news. Uh, this is based on our organization, um, I referred out, I believe, uh, I think it's over 60 cases now um, of hospital homicides uh, to uh, 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 actually, uh, it's, it's over 80 now, over 80 cases to a constellation of attorneys that we work with. And none of those cases have thus far been dismissed. So, and you referenced um, Grace. Uh, the uh, lovely girl, a uh, woman, actually, young woman with yep. Down syndrome. They just basically, the, 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 the defense basically got a second bite of the apple on a motion to dismiss. And Werner Mendenhall, that's, that's uh, handling that matter for Grace, um, survived the second motion to dismiss. So the litigation feedback that we're getting across the nation, again, we're, we have victims in all 50 states and we've referred cases out, I believe, in over 10 states now. Very, very encouraging. And what I think we're beginning to see is an acknowledgement by some of the judges that something absolutely terrible has happened. And they're starting to think a little bit outside the box, outside the margins. Um, That's what I think we're seeing now. Now, I know this is not your lawsuit, but you're coming from a different angle, like you explained in Shasta County. But the Michigan lawsuit with the contempt. so, So what they're hitting at is that. You know, even if you want to say that remdesivir is a poison is covered by the PrEP Act, but the you can't put poison in the poison. So if the, if it's if it's adulterated with glass particles, so then that in itself is a problem, and that survived motion to dismiss. So do you think that that could provide a pathway now to a lawsuit against the COVID vaccines? In the sense that even if you ignore the poison of the actual ingredients that are supposed to be in there, like the spike protein, but the fact that we now have numerous uh, cases and numerous uh, uh, angles of evidence showing this the plasmid DNAs left in it, do you think that that could follow the same mold, or is that going to be a tougher lift with the PrEP Act? 
No, I think, I think you're hitting on it, and you're really touching upon our strategy from the beginning, which was to help create a market of plaintiff's attorneys that would, would take over these matters and really uh, take over, shoulder a lot of the burden that, that ordinarily enforcement agencies would be doing. And we have multiple attorneys pursuing multiple strategies. I do believe that ultimately the PREP Act will have to be determined to be unconstitutional. That's not the best way to go at it right now. We're no. kind of going around, right? But, but ultimately, a lot of this stuff is going to be undone. I think you could see legislatures extend uh, statutes of limitation because I think there's, again, if this acknowledgement begins to sort of cover and blanket the country, you're going to see people look for creative solutions because clearly you have people that were egregiously damaged and harmed by this. And it, the, more, the more we dig into it, the more it looks like some of these decisions were made in bad faith. And as you know, whenever you get into bad faith, uh, sovereign immunity starts, starts to be called into question if that will hold up. On the vaccine front, um, yes, we're, there's, there's multiple angles to attack the vaccine. Our effort that we support and have co-sponsored, We The People 50 at WeThePeople50.com, um, we're going at uh, local counties and trying to make the case with our experts, we have a pantheon of experts, that those local counties have enough authority to basically ban the administration of the vaccine in their local counties. Um, we also have documented through our experts that these, uh, the Pfizer vaccine was adulterated, it has plasmids in it, SB40, all kinds of bad things and genetic material that can actually re, re, uh, reprogram genetics. The regime is pushing back on that, but ultimately, because we're, we're, we're fully anchored to truth, ultimately that's going to come out. It's going to be very difficult for them to deal with that. Yeah. And there are legal. Multiple papers now, multiple studies have proven that. Yes, and the guy that really deserves a lot of the credit are uh, Dr. Janzi Lindsay and uh, Kevin, um, oh, I was forgetting last name, Blake, Kevin McKernan, who's just, somehow they got samples and they got them, which is, as you know, they keep these samples under lock and key, you just can't get them. Um, and they got them tested in three or four independent I mean, labs, and he, they all found the stuff in them. They all found it. And, and did you see the the Epic Times got a response from the FDA? They didn't deny it. They just said that, you know, well, uh, we've had billions of doses given, and it's not a problem, the fact that they're there, because no one was injured. <laughs> they said no one was injured, so, you know, obviously the plasmids aren't a problem. <laughs> and when, when, what I would say to our my esteemed former colleagues in these governmental agencies, take the, the FDA, the CDC, NIH, this upper crust of government officials, typically politically appointed, they're going to be cleaned out. They're going to have to resign. There's going to be investigations ultimately that are done on them so that the GS-14, GS-15 level of experts, you know, the journeymen, um, career civil servants, it's really time to come forward and provide members of the public uh, with information about impropriety and wrongdoing by senior leader, leadership. I represent whistleblowers. They, are, they, be, they, become, they have yes. begun to come forward. It's a trickle now. I think it's beginning to become a stream. I would want to get out in front of this because the momentum is really in our favor at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of their counterattacks, but, but, but obviously you guys are making headway here. Uh, I want to change gears once more. Obviously, the COVID stuff was an attack on our life. Then you have the attack on our liberty and our, our political views. And that was embodied through uh, January 6th and everything that grew out from it. Uh, you've been telling me for a while, we've, we've spoken a lot on the phone, about the second wave of January 6th attacks. And I don't mean the the day of, I mean the legal attack. So where they can't lock them up for life or maybe they lock them up for a year or two, and but then they get out. Okay, maybe finally these guys could rebuild their lives. Then they come after them now with civil lawsuits. Could you describe the players behind them and their motivation and, and just the lives of some of your clients, what they're putting up with long-term from this? 
So one of the things that the left has been really adept at doing is getting government functions, realigning those government functions to, to pursue whatever, basically Marxist goals. I mean, to put, not to put too fine of a point on it, but that's what it seems to many observers. And so like in the Washington, D.C., for instance, as an example, you have Washington, D.C. versus the Proud Boys, which is really a constellation of about on the plaintiff side, you have you have large law firms that are billing tremendous amount of money being paid in taxpayer funds to pursue these uh, claims, which, uh, frankly, are just to, you know, squeeze the last pennies out of these people that they've already pulverized. And. On the other side, the defendants are people like Ken Harrelson, who I believe was, was falsely accused and falsely convicted. It's beginning to come out. Um, some of the problems with that prosecution, again, nothing, uh, when systems are compromised to this extent, what you find are that people in those systems, if you look at what their actual behavior is, no one's acting unethically. They're just, they're acting ethically, but it's so systemic and across the board that everybody just altering their conduct a little bit results in the final outcome being that, you know, the system uh, or the institution just isn't functioning the way that it, that, that it has in decades, decades past. So this is a new, you know, it's pejoratively known as lawfare, where you just have these, these generous uh, funding uh, an array of funding apparatus that includes taxpayer funds, NGO funds, donations, um, to have very, uh, you know, highly trained top of the line attorneys uh, going after political opponents, essentially. Um, so is this you know, kind of an iron triangle between the D.C. government? So the D.C. government gets a bunch of taxpayer funding. They pony up that money to go after J6 defendants civilly for whatever, harming the city or whatever that means. And then you have, so they're one. Two, you have the NGOs that supply kind of the research, the agitation. And then three, the law firms that are associated with them, they become the vendors that get paid to go after them. Spoken by somebody who's probably one of the most (laughs) informed about these issues. Yes, exactly. Okay, so... Now, tell me, tell me this. If I'm a governor of a red state and I have some of these defendants and I have the D.C. government. So, like, the feds is kind of tough. It's tough for a state to protect the individual from the feds at this point. But, but the civil lawsuits are the D.C. government, right? I mean, do I have that correct? Yes, absolutely. So what could a Mayor state Bowser, do? Yes. What could a governor or legislature do to protect them? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I guess any, uh, judgments, uh, that are rendered, um, on behalf of the, of the plaintiff, in this case, the district of Columbia, um, that are seeking execution in an individual state, you could pass legislation perhaps to give special protections against, um, this kind of thing. Uh, it's, that's one of the, one of the problems is there everybody's complying with the uh the the details of the laws like there's no it's it's all perfectly legal what's being done i don't want to i don't want to give anybody any uh any misconceptions of the contrary but it's just like you you have these um this 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 conduct by by this group of organization that are coordinating in a way that historically never happened before and legislation they're they're like special operators that the the ngos picture like the southern poverty law center type of thing they're like the special ops on the ground and then what a special ops they call in airstrikes so the airstrike is the legal system so they they have a way of they have a pot of money and a synergistic operation of money and personnel all getting passed around through various policies that have been built up, signed into law, like you said, for, for many years. And then anyone like you, people like you and me that fight a given issue, I know we, we've talked about some other whistleblowers that you represent and we might do a future show on that. 
So they start exposing these left-wing groups. So let's say I start going after the SPLC or the ADL that we uh, uh, like to call the Arab Defense League here. And I, so let's say I go <laughs> right. after them. They'll they'll call up their buddies either in yes. you know in the DOJ or the law firms that sort of work with them, the guys, contractors, and say, "Hey, what what do you have on Daniel? What's going on there?" And then they'll find something to start going after. Is, is could you talk about any other sphere where you're seeing that happen aside from J six? Uh, well, I mean. Over the last 10 years, there's been an effort within the Department of Justice to reconfigure, uh, create new agencies within the Department of Justice that allocate victim witness funds. So uh, restitution used to go to a victim witness fund that was administered by, you know, government bureaucrats and typically would go out to rape victims, uh, victims of, you know, drug organizations, next of kin of somebody that, you know, was, was killed um, beginning, I believe in around 2012 to 2014, um, they, they, they put some sub agencies within the department of justice and they started to dole that money out to left-wing NGOs. So instead of, you know, the direct victim getting it, it, it went to, I would argue, dodgy NGOs who then, you know, gave it out under whatever guidelines they had that had the effect again of pursuing sort of like uh, a, f- a political focal point that it never really, it ne- never really functioned like that, like that before. And um, you're also starting to see state prosecutorial agencies, um, g- you know, g- get into this business as well. Yep. where it seems like there's a relaxation of ordinary standards. If a loyalist has been attacked, you know, by somebody from the other side, we're going to mobilize state law enforcement apparatus to go yes. after that. And yes. what I would say to the folks on the right, because I feel like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a referee here to some extent, the, the way to fix this is not to get the pendulum to swing radically to the right, and start retaliating against the other side just the way that, you know, they were retaliated against by, by the left. The, the, the principal matter to go forward is to try to get these agencies to begin going down the strike zone again. The challenge is that unilateral disarmament never seems yes. to be a winning strategy. No, it, it doesn't. At a minimum, we need red states to have a legal defense fund to protect those vulnerable to political persecution like your clients that have no money they're bankrupted um and then also i mean at least those that legitimately do commit crimes like i think with all this pro hamas stuff i mean we all know that the muslim student association um mpac and care i mean they they do it's, it's not just that they say things we don't like they they fundraise for hamas and this has been proven in the fifth circuit before you know, very long time ago, and it's still going on. So this is the sort of thing that we need to go after in red states. But I agree, just to kind of like, you know, just tip for tat as an end to itself is a little bit some of that reactionary politics I was talking about before we brought you on. But this is this is vital work. And where could people go if people either want to donate or they themselves are a whistleblower, have a case, and they want to contact you? Give us your contact information. Oh, sure. So the, the, the website where they can make a donation and just read up on us is formerfeds.org. Um, if, if they want to look and see at, uh, some of our 1,300 eyewitness statements and witness statements about what happened in hospitals, personal testimony about vaccine injury and death, um, you could go to uh, chbmp.org. And um, I, my personal uh, Twitter account is at Brad Geyer. And um, you can also occasionally I'm, I'm at the command center at at former feds, uh, but that's a networked account. And um, anybody can send an email to me at uh, bradford.geyer at formerfedsgroup.com. Perfect. Perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll make note of that in the show notes. Um, thanks so much for joining us and really God bless you in your holy, holy work. Take care. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for all you do. Talk to you soon. 
So, folks, that was Brett Geyer, one of my favorite people on planet Earth, really a guy that does it all for the right reasons. You know, too much of the January 6th infrastructure has now kind of become a clique and uh, has its own agenda. He, he just does it for the right reasons and genuinely cares, genuinely wants to do something about about it. And, you know, what our chances are, I don't know. But again, all you can do is stand for the right thing and do what's in your power to move the ball forward. The rest is for God. And, you know, what's therapeutic is if you, uh, over the weekend, if you want to add to your prayers, Psalms 140, it really speaks to everything that is facing us, um, the power and lies uh, that we're up against, the double traps, that really there is no uh, solution outside of God, in my view, uh, how to deal with this, but uh, if we want a godly solution, we we in our own hearts and minds and actions have to be deserving of his countenance, and, and that really means, you know, not buying into false dichotomies and standing for the right thing. Ultimately, we can't do this alone. We've had a terrifically productive week, thanks to you guys. Please give me a five-star rating on iTunes if you can for a CR podcast. Contact me anytime, Daniel Hurwitz at, at startmail.com. And hope you guys have a terrific family-oriented weekend. See you again. Same time, same place. Monday.